All right. Well, um, right now, our guest, Lauren F. Klein, is uh, getting her slides together. She is our very special guest today, uh, who's going to be talking about a brand new book. And by brand new, I mean like hot off the presses. It came out on Tuesday. So this is about as, as fresh a book talk as we could hope for. Um, and through the, uh, the, the virtues of an online um, uh, um, event like this, we're actually able to accommodate her, even though she's down at Emory University right now. So um, that is one benefit to all of this. So um, just a couple of introductory words. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Scholarly Innovation here at the Library Company of Philadelphia. For those of you who haven't heard of the Library Company, um, I like to think that we're a special place. We were founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731 as the first subscription library in America. Um, that means that we basically cast the blueprint for public libraries. And um, uh, we exported that model out throughout not only Philadelphia, but throughout the um, the, the colonies. And then in the 20th century, we really transformed into a research library, which is really our function today. We support a lot of um, scholars who come in from all over the country, all over the world to do research in our archival collections. Um, and this, uh, this whole series of fireside chats, as we're calling them, this weekly webinar series, is really sustained by those research fellows, our current and former fellows. We have basically turned this over to them uh, and allowed them to share their research with uh, the rest of us and um, to make us all better for it. Um, and so I want to draw attention to a couple of features of what we have enabled here. Um, this is a webinar version of Zoom, so it's a little bit flatter than what you might be accustomed to if you've been at a Zoom meeting before. The key features are the chat function, which I'll be using periodically to share links. You'll see that I dropped the link into the manifold edition of the book that um, we're going to be disporting that Lauren will be talking about today in Archive of Taste. Um, if I think of anything else uh, clever to put in there, I will. Um, and certainly we can compile that down the road. Um, the other uh, key feature that I want you to take note of is the Q&A feature. Um, as Lauren is discussing this book, if you have a question, rather than holding on to it until the very end when you might forget it, record it in the Q&A. And I will try to work through all the questions based upon the sequence in which they arrive. So I invite you to submit the questions earlier, the better. If not, you're going to be stuck with my silly questions. Um, uh, finally, I want to make clear that this whole presentation will be made available after the fact. So this is our sort of synchronous version of this. But if you think this is a really wonderful talk and you want to share it with folks that maybe couldn't make it here on a seven o'clock on a Thursday night, we'll have it available through our YouTube feed and uh, then also through our podcast channel, uh, which will go out to all the major podcast subscription areas. So uh, stay tuned for that. We will send out uh, those links in the next week and any other notes that we can think of. For example, I know that Lauren had some kind of um, discount code for purchasing the book through University of Minnesota Press. And we'll make sure that you have access to that code because it knocks a good chunk of change off the book, which really does look remarkable. The last call to action that I would add is that if you're excited about what you're seeing tonight and you want to know about other things that are going on at the library company, sign up for our email list. It doesn't cost a darn thing. Just go to librarycompany.org, scroll down to the bottom of the page and drop it an email. And this way we can share all of our monthly events. We're still doing quite a lot, even though we're physically closed. So with that, I'd like to introduce our very special speaker today. Um, Dr. Lauren F. Klein is an associate professor of English and quantitative theory and methods at Emory University, where she also directs the Digital Humanities Lab. Klein is the author of An Archive of Taste, 
Race and Eating in the Early United States. That's that book that was just published this week by University of Minnesota Press. And with Catherine Dignazio, Dignazio, excuse me, uh, she also published Data Feminism from MIT Press in 2020. It's been a very prolific year so far. With Matthew K. Gold, she edits the superb Debates in the Digital Humanities, a hybrid print digital publication stream that explores debates in the field as they emerge. Um, notably, she was the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Library Company in spring of 2014. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for this kind introduction. I have to say, you know, I, that time at the library company was so fortuitous to me and I had to smile because my younger daughter this morning picked out a dress that I purchased for her at the kids play space that's sort of diagonally across the street from the library company that I purchased for my older daughter when I was a fellow there in 2013. So um, that time really does live on in, um, in Tiny Humans, um, as well as in this book. Um, thank you also to everyone for listening. You know, I know in this age of constant uh, Zoom possibilities, there are a lot of demands on your time. So I appreciate you, uh, you taking the time to uh, listen in on this one. So I am going to try to just share my screen here. This is the book. Um, you can see here it exists here in real life as of, uh, as of a couple days ago. It's called An Archive of Taste, Race and Eating in the Early United States. And, um, you know, I thought I would just start with a quick indigenous land acknowledgement. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is the sort of the cultural foundations of our country and it seemed really necessary to acknowledge its physical foundation as well and um, even though we are virtual um, in this this time of coronavirus um, we're all sitting on physical ground so i want to acknowledge the muskogee creek people as the traditional stewards of the land on which i sit and the enduring relationship that exists between them and their territory i acknowledge the painful history of genocide and forced removal from this place and honor and respect the many diverse indigenous peoples connected to the land we call the United States. So the point of departure for my book is in some ways quite simple. Um, there's, there's no eating in the archive. And I mean this not only as a practical admonition, you know, although it's a real one, as anyone who's spent time at those desks of the library company knows well, um, but I mean it also as a methodological challenge. Um, there's quite literally no eating, or at least no food, preserved among the books and letters and newspapers and manuscripts and all of these documents that constitute the archival record of the early United States. So I thought I would begin just with a quick illustration of this point. So this is a letter written from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison in 1787. And this was while Jefferson was serving as minister to France. And in it, you can see I've highlighted it down on the bottom left. Jefferson requests that Madison send him, quote, a few barrels of Newtown Pippins, apples. Um, I, apologies for my children who are screaming. Um, and some cranberries to eat along with some roots of the Newtown Pippin tree for him to attempt to plant in France. 
Um, and he says they would be quote, very desirable to me. And then he proceeds to give very detailed packing instructions for how they should be layered between sheets of moss. Um, in any case, you know, obviously we, we no longer have these apples or cranberries to eat, even though we know that they were very important for Jefferson. So, you know, the basic question is, so what is a scholar interested in this idea of eating in the early republic supposed to do? Um, you know, and I've spent, excuse me, hold on a minute. Um, so I spent, you know, a lot, a lot of years, at least a decade, if I'm being honest, thinking about constraints like this. So about food that I can't taste, um, about an understanding of eating that is really far removed from what we might talk about as our sort of present food culture, and then about the methods that might allow me to recover some of this, or if not recover, then sort of reimagine the experiences of eating that are embedded in this archive. And in the process of doing this work, I've also been drawn to the conceptual paths by which eating sort of came to matter in that particular temporal moment. So I have a more complicated argument in the book um, that if you're interested in, we can talk more about later. But essentially, this idea that over the course of the 18th century, eating emerged as, eating emerged as this new form of aesthetic expression. And it subsequently transformed into a means of expressing both allegiance to and resistance to the dominant Enlightenment worldview. Um, so that's sort of the, the philosophical argument. But there's a second part to this claim, and it's that we can't fully appreciate the depth of the, this aesthetic mode or even the range of people who contributed to its development by relying only on instances like this, sort of, of evidence of the foods that the founding fathers like to eat. We also really necessarily need to account for the experiences of eating that resist preservation, as well as the experiences of people, uh, the people who were involved in, for instance, like creating up these apples that Jefferson wanted, um, or for a related example, the particular person who prepared each of the meals that Thomas Jefferson ate. Um, in this person's name, we know it. Um, his name was James Hemings. He was Sally Hemings' older brother. And what we know about his life comes to us through documents like these, which you can see in this slide. Um, so what you see here is the Emancipation Agreement um, between Jefferson and Hemings. It was written by Jefferson. It was witnessed by his white maitre d'hotel, sort of the person in charge of his house. Um, and Jefferson, he really loved food so much and believed that it was so important to advancing his Republican ideals that when he traveled to France to take up his appointment, as minister there. Um, he also took James Hemings with him and had him apprentice to the chef of a former prince. Um, and Hemings uh, learned to cook in the high French style. And in the process, he learned to speak and write in fluent French. He could also uh, write in English as well. Um, and also because in France, slavery had already been abolished, Hemings learned what it was like to be free. Um, and yet in this document, which was written in 1796, so only a few years after his return from France, um, and the document outlines the conditions for Hemings' eventual emancipation, we see how Jefferson at once acknowledges Hemings' invaluable contributions to his dinner table, and yet begrudges Hemings, this is the man, you know, whom Jefferson himself enslaved, the quote, great expense of training him up as a chef. Um, and actually in this agreement, Jefferson stipulates that Hemings train another man in what he describes as the quote, art of cookery before Hemings can be freed. In effect, forcing him to exchange his culinary uh, knowledge for his corporeal freedom. 
So, you know, I thought I would start with this example because you can really see direct evidence of the contradictions of Jefferson's republicanism. So his insistence on the ideals of liberty and equality at the same time that he relied upon enslaved people like James Hemings in order to put those ideals on public display. And I'm hoping also that you can start to see how a focus on figures like James Hemings, so these are the people who I'm gonna quote Lin-Manuel Miranda and come back to Hamilton a little bit later. Um, these are the people who were in the room where it happened. How a focus on these figures opens up the story we can tell about the nation's cultural foundation to include a whole additional set of people um, and actions and even theories about taste. And all of these together really enrich our understanding in the present. Um, so sort of from where we sit here, um, they enrich our understanding about by whom and by what means our cultural foundation was composed. So um, in the rest of my formal time today, I'm going to talk a little bit more about James Hemings's contributions to the nation's cultural foundation, as well as some methods that I employed in writing the book um, that helped me expand the significance of the gaps in our knowledge about Hemings' life, and then um, the gaps that characterize our knowledge about the lives of some other men and women who were also enslaved. And then at the end, I'll just quickly discuss a few of my other sort of uh, favorite examples from the book. So this involves a cookbook from the 1860s and then a painting um, that has had some resonance today. And they sort of help point out some additional methods that we might employ in order to sort of infuse this archive of taste with some new meaning. And hopefully um, that will be just about 30 minutes, um, which will leave us some time for the Q&A. So um, we'll pick up James Hemings's life here in eight, February of 1801. Um, so this is eight years after Jefferson penned the Emancipation Agreement on a previous slide, but only five years after Jefferson legally granted Hemings his freedom. And what you can see here is a letter written from Jefferson to a man named William Evans, um, who ran an inn up in Baltimore. Um, I'm showing you a screenshot of the letter as it appears in the papers of Thomas Jefferson digital edition um, for reasons that I'll explain later. Um, but for now, I'll just note that this letter, it was initially transcribed from a press copy of Jefferson's own. So Jefferson himself made a copy of this. Um, and then it was transcribed at some point in the late 20th century by the editorial team working on the print edition of the Thomas Jefferson papers. And then at some point in the early 2000s, it was digitized for the digital ed edition, um, which was initially published by the University of Virginia Press. And then at some point after that, an agreement was made with the Library of Congress so that it could enter um, this interface that you see the founders online, which is available through the Library of Congress free to the public. Um, but in any case, sort of back to William Evans. Um, Jefferson, he wasn't particularly close to this man, but his inn uh, served as a relay point for uh, the mail route up and down the East Coast. Um, so Evans just had contact with a lot of people, pretty much anyone in his area who wanted to send something by mail or who wanted to check if they had received a letter came to this inn. Um, and so you can see here, um, Jefferson references a conversation that he had had with Evans in the past. He writes, quote, you mentioned to me in conversation here that you sometimes saw my former servant James and that he made his engagements such as to keep himself always free to come to me. Could I get the, uh, could I get the favor of you to send for him and tell him I shall be glad to receive him as soon as he can come to me. So Jefferson 
at this point was only two weeks away from assuming the presidency. His inauguration would take place on March 4th of that year. Um, and they would say like, now if you watch a lot of Top Chef, he would say like he was in the weeds, right? Um, and he actually admits as much when he apologizes to Evans. He says, quote, um, the truth is that I'm so much embarrassed in composing a good household for myself as in providing a good administration for our country. Embarrassed here just means like in the archaic sense, experiencing difficulties. Um, and you see here in Jefferson's language, you get this indicator of the equivalence, this direct equivalence that Jefferson identified between his household and his governing. So the quality of the food that he served at his table and the quality of the government that he intended to oversee. So I sort of thus far, I've sort of taken it a little bit for granted that you know that Jefferson was really into food. Um, he really was, but just to give a few examples of this. So here is Jefferson's diagram of a macaroni machine, um, which he first encountered in Italy and then brought, with, uh, brought back with him home to Monticello upon his return. Um, here's uh, a recipe for ice cream uh, written in Jefferson's own hand. And he actually played a large part in popularizing ice cream in the United States, although technically uh, George Washington was actually the first to import what was then called a quote, cream machine for ice um, to the US. But it wasn't just the particular foods that Jefferson ate or forced Hemings to prepare. Um, it was what he thought they meant. So for Jefferson, food truly was emblematic of his Republican ideal. So when he was in Paris, he deliberately cultivated a variety of indigenous American ingredients in his garden there, and then he would sort of ostentatiously sow them, uh, serve them to his guests. Um, he developed a new serving style in which plates were placed directly on the table and then guests could serve themselves. This was in contrast to having meals be served by other people. Um, and he intended this to represent sort of this virtuous simplicity of the nation's citizenry. Um, he also introduced the use of a round or sometimes an oval table rather than a rectangular one um, and also didn't have assigned seats. And these were gestures that were intended also to express the egalitarianism inherent in the nation's founding. Um, and then also to foster this sort of a respectful exchange of ideas across the table that would sustain its future growth. Um, and then finally, there's uh, the famous dinner table bargain, which is dramatized for all of us in Hamilton um, with the song, The Room, where it happens. No, you can't watch Hamilton right now. This is just a screenshot of it. Um, so the dinner table bargain was one of the most famous acts of political compromise in the early Republic. Um, as Jefferson tells it, um, although this is disputed, he invited Hamilton and John Adams to what he described as a quote, little dinner at his house. And he was hoping to resolve the issue of states' debts without a political fight. Um, and the result actually was that the South, the, the debt stuff is less interesting, but the South agreed to support the federal assumption of those debts in exchange for the promise of relocating the nation the nation's capital from its temporary home in New York City to what now would become Washington, D.C. Um, so that was sort of the, the consequence that we probably most readily experience today. So in this slide, you see David Diggs as Jefferson saying, quote, I arranged the meeting, I arranged the menu, the venue, the seating. Um, and then in the book, I talk about how the dinner table bargain really encapsulates Jefferson's ideas about what I call Republican taste. So this is this idea of the sense of taste that is sort of equal parts gustatory having to do with food and then also aesthetic having to do with sort of judgments about um, aesthetic worth. And it carried with it all sorts of Republican ideals of temperance, of simplicity, of moderation, both in choice of food um, and also in politics. And 
you know, in truth, um, you know, a lot of people have written about how the functioning of the Republic required citizens to cultivate good taste in, the, in a general sense, um, so that they could be expected to sort of make appropriate decisions as citizens um, and sort of cultivate themselves uh, in a Republican manner. And most importantly, be able to make appropriate decisions with respect to voting, right? Like how could you expect that people would make the correct political decisions when casting a ballot? Well, if there were some evidence that they could essentially cultivate themselves to appreciate fine art and certain writing and things like this, um, then it maybe would show that they would be able to sort of uh, inhabit these Republican ideals. Um, but what my book does is makes the case that this sense of taste has this sort of crucial and unacknowledged source which is the dining table. And actually, if you go back to it in certain respects, so these virtues, especially those of temperance and moderation, you see them first cultivated at the table and then only then transposed to the civic sphere. So this sort of brings me back to the role of James Hemings. Um, so this is the person who actually cooked the meal that Jefferson uh, and John Adams and Hamilton eat that night. Um, Amana's talking right now, so you're gonna have to play with your Legos. Um, and so this is the meal that Jefferson would go on to mythologize in later accounts, including his autobiography, um, because he, he recognized that it represented so much about his Republican ideals. But what we actually know about Hemings' life um, is quite scant. Um, and that scantness sort of has to do with his status as an enslaved person at the time. So you'll notice in the letter here, for example, that Jefferson only refers to Hemings in the letter as my former servant James. That's the part that's highlighted in green. Um, and it's only because the person, again, this 20th century scholar who has uh, annotated the letter has indicated that the James refers to James Hemings. And you can see that at the editorial note on the very bottom, James Hemings, who had served as TJ's chef from 1787 till 1796. Um, so this is the only reason that we can associate that James, a very common name then as now, with James Hemings at all. Um, but if you go and do an author search for James Hemings in the same archive, which contains um, at this point 41,000 documents either written by or written to Jefferson, and that's not even including all of the other founders who are included in this meta collection, um, you would get no results. And this is because Jefferson, as an enslaved man, um, was not a person to whom or Jefferson ever wrote directly. So you can actually even see this in the request that he made to Evans to quote, send for him and tell him I shall be glad to receive him. And this remains true even as we've already learned, as I've told you, Hemings could read and write not only in English, but also in French, right? Like there's no reason why Jefferson couldn't have also sent him a letter. Um, but this is not just a failure of um, sort of our limits of search, right? You know, like our ability to type the right keywords into the browser. It's what I see as a really striking instance of what scholars call archival silence. Um, and there are many articulations of this phenomenon, but the most powerful to me really remains that of the Haitian historian Michel Rolf Trujillo. And he writes, and read it here, silences enter the process of historical production at four crucial moments. The moment of fact creation in the making of sources, the moment of fact assembly in the making of archives, the moment of fact retrieval in the making of narratives, and the moment of retrospective significance. So this is the making of history in the final instance. And while Trio's formulation allows us to see how silences enter the archive, 
It also allows us to see how we might move beyond them. So how we might recognize the power imbalances involved in these decisions around the making of sources and archives and narratives and history, and then begin the work of writing them. Um, and I should pause here to say that sort of like any work that we do in the archive of slavery going forward cannot hope to sort of counter what Sidia Hartman has described as the irreparable violence um, of slavery that it sort of has wrought on this archive. This is what Jessica Marie Johnson also talks about as the primary evidence of terror. And so what I'm trying to do now is just refocus our critical eye with respect to the contents of the archive, the contents that it does contain. So the fragments in the archive that attest to things like life and community and kin. So this was the goal that sort of prompted my turn to some new techniques that fall under the rubric of the digital humanities. So this is a field that seeks to blend computational methods with more traditional humanistic concerns. And so what you're looking at here is something called a correspondence network. Um, it's a diagram of people like William Evans to whom Jefferson wrote or from whom Jefferson um, received letters. And I've limited this just to the letters that were about James Hemings. Um, and I compiled this network data by searching the archive and its notes for instances of James Hemings and then converting it into their sort of a standard data format required for network analysis. So you can see the correspondence are arranged into groups. Um, from left to right, Jefferson and his family, his political correspondence, and so on. Um, and then an arc connecting two names indicates the that there was correspondence between them, and the width of the arc, the thickness, indicates the frequency with which they corresponded. Um, so obviously, because Je this is the Jefferson archive, so all of the arcs connect to him. Um, but then you see some arcs that make sense. You know, Nicholas Lewis, for instance, was Jefferson's neighbor in Virginia. Um, George Jefferson, not a relation, was actually Je uh, Jefferson's agent. Um, and, you know, a couple of other people where you can sort of explain them away. And presumably you have Jefferson corresponding with each of these men about the materials and services that were required for Hemings to create his food, right? This is his artful cookery for the plantation residents and guests. And so, in this way, the network view of Jefferson's correspondence, it makes visible what I sort of think of as the reach of Hemings cooking, right? Sort of centered in the, cook, in the kitchen, but really extending across Monticello and the region in the ingredients he purchased, uh, the dinners he prepared, and the politics he influenced through the flavors of his food. But the fourth wide arc in this diagram, the one that connects Jefferson to Evans, sort of isn't connected to those transactions, right? Um, as I noted a couple of minutes ago, Evans, you know, be just because of his location at the inn that he ran, he was like this node in this material print network, right? Um, and actually, because of this reason, Evans' presence in the Jefferson archive is more readily discerned. So in contrast to the absence of results of a name search for James Hemings, you can do a name search on William Evans and you get this chain of correspondence um, that includes him and then some other people through which you can actually discern Hemings' eventual fate. So evidently, Hemings had already been involved in negotiations for employment with Jefferson well before Jefferson sought Evans' help. So, you know, probably having spent the first 25 years of his life enslaved, he understood the importance of defining the terms of his employment in advance, right? And you can see here that he's requesting through another acquaintance that Jefferson, quote, send him a few lines of engagement and is on what conditions tired from going up and down? my mouth is not getting tired believe it or not on what conditions and what wages I, I Jefferson would please to give him 
And then he further specifies that the offer should be in Jefferson's quote, own handwriting. And so this is Hemings demonstrating his own awareness of the power of prints, and in particular, the power of Jefferson's personal hand as president-elect to stand in for the de jure agreement that his status as a black man, even a free black man, precluded him from ever wielding to its full effect. Um, but for reasons unknown, Jefferson failed to comply with this request. So the next letter in the archive is from Evans back to Jefferson, and it documents what I think is he Hemings' sort of confident tone. So we don't know exactly what Hemings said, but Evan re Evans reports to Jefferson, quote, the answer he returned to me was that he, he would not go to Washington until you should write to him yourself. So here we get the sort of powerful confirmation of Hemings' literacy, his business acumen, his determined stance, um, but despite its importance, this letter doesn't appear in the results of a search for James Hemings because the editors have not marked it as referring to Hemings as they did in the previous letter. But in either case, you know, whether or not Hemings uh, Evans influenced the outcome of the situation, the digital archive, it just doesn't say. Um, Hemings never became the chef at the White House. Um, and there's actually an eight month gap in the corresponding correspondence between Jefferson and Evans. And then the next, and actually the final exchange in the archive, which is from November of that year, confirms what Evans describes as the melancholy circumstance of Hemings' suicide. Thank you. Can you? Um, so the story of James Hemings is one that Cydia Hartman writes uh, with respect to sort of another one of these sort of ghostly stories in the archive of slavery, are, of which there are you know, far too many. It's, quote, predicated upon impossibility. Um, to tell this story involves uh, listening for the unsaid, translating misconstrued words, and refashioning disfigured lives. An intent on achieving an impossible goal, the redressing of the violence that produced the numbers, ciphers, and fragments that constitute slavery's archive. So in the case of James Hemings, sort of even as we consider all of this information that is disclosed to us through Jefferson's correspondence, we're reminded with sort of the foreknowledge of his suicide, how little of the life of James Hemings we will ever truly know. Like we just, we cannot put ourselves in his mind and we do not have access to that. Um, so is it possible to visualize this impossibility was sort of the question that I then found myself facing. And as a secondary question, sort of, is this a task that should be undertaken at all? You know, and Hartman in this particular essay laments that she has not yet discovered a quote, a uh, way of what she describes as quote, deranging the archive so that it can recall the contents of a person's life or some sort of truer or clearer picture. Um, but interestingly, in her more recent work, she's turned to a form of sort of fictionalizing of fact that allows her to sort of conjure something new from the absence. This is what she talks about. Um, and in my book, I've actually returned to this idea of data visualization as a complementary technique. So um, I'm almost done with my remarks here. This is a second network diagram. And rather than representing the people writing and receiving letters, it shows the people mentioned in the same set of letters, um, like the sort of former servant James that I began my story with. Um, and if you're interested, I can talk a little bit more about how I created the diagram later. But the point of the image is to emphasize the complexity of relationships, both among people and across social groups. 
And I think much more significantly, um, the arcs that link Jefferson to the men and women he enslaved, they're much more prominent that the, than those that link him to his family members and friends, suggesting the degree to which Jefferson relied on his enslaved plantation staff to implement his various directives, right? So you can think back to the send me the apples while I'm in France, pack them layer by layer in moss. Um, also the purchase of provisions for his table, seeds for his farm and garden, you know, all these other supplies that supported his project of producing Republican taste. And so in this way, the visualization conjures a sense of the scope of Jefferson's dependence on these men and women in order to advance his project, even as it can't recreate what these people said in their conversations, either with Jefferson or with each other, um, where they went to conduct their required transactions or anything about how they truly live their everyday lives. Um, you know, I think what this image does is rather than represent the archive as something that's static or fixed and sort of resists, this is something that Stephen Best, who's a literary scholar, talks about as the quote, logic and ethic of recovery, um, that sort of nevertheless inadvertently reinscribes these bodies and voices as lost. Um, this image instead, I think, challenges us as scholars to make these unrecorded stories that we encounter, um, whether it be about eating or about life, really expand um, with motion and feeling. And so in my remaining time, I just want to briefly just uh, discuss a few other rec unrecorded stories that I consider in the book and then the methods that I use to try to reanimate them. Um, the first is that of Melinda Russell. She was the first black woman to author a cookbook in the United States. Um, and interestingly, sort of unlike the story of James Hemings, which is stitched together through these archival fragments, the only thing we know about Russell is the story that she tells herself. So the cookbook begins with a short history of the author. Um, we learn how in the 1850s, uh, she set off from Eastern Tennessee where she was born um, to seek a new life in Liberia. Um, but then we learn um, she actually ended up getting robbed on the way by a member of her traveling party. And then she had to find a job and the job that she found was to work as a cook. Um, and she moved around the Southeast. She eventually settled in Greenville in Tennessee and she opened a highly regarded pastry shop. Um, and actually it's her pastry recipes, which you can see here. Um, they would become the core of this cookbook, which she self-published in 1866, making it the earliest African-American authored cookbook presently known. Um, but there's sort of the question of beyond its firstness, like how do you make this cookbook mean something more? And so what I do in the, that chapter of the book is to think a little bit more about what a cookbook is intended to do, sort of who is it, who, who it's intended to be used by, and then um, who, who it's intended to benefit. Um, and then I end up with, uh, which is probably my sort of favorite conceptual argument in the book about how Russell intended her recipes to elicit satisfaction. Um, and in the book, I uh, build out an argument about Russell's theory of satisfaction as sort of a counterpoint to this discourse of taste. So this is the one that sort of structured Jefferson and Hemings' relationship and then encapsulated so much about the dominant Republican ideology at the time. Um, I also consider this portrait. You can see the original on the left and the UV analysis on the right. Um, it's also the cover of my book. Um, this was a portrait that for many years was attributed to Gilbert Stewart. Um, this is obviously the artist who painted the portrait of George Washington um, that appears on the $1 bill. And people thought that this was a portrait painted at that same time of a man named Hercules, who was George Washington's enslaved cook. Um, and until at least 2017, it was installed in this very gilded frame um, in uh, the Museo Nacional uh, Thyssen Bornemisia, which is in Madrid in Spain. 
Um, but just as I was preparing to submit the final manuscript of this book, I discovered that the painting had actually been deauthenticated. Um, it turned out the portrait was not of Hercules. It was not even of a chef. Um, it actually wasn't even painted by Gilbert Stewart. Um, what viewers assumed to be a chef's toque was in fact a hat worn by black men in the Caribbean. And then the, U the UV image that you see over here on the right was part of that analysis and it was designed to expose the lead contents of the white paint in order to try to date the painting and match it with Gilbert Stewart's application of white paints. And that sort of serves to confirm its deauthentication. Um, and so in the book, I talk about how this desire on the one hand, and then the disappointment that follows uh, when this turned out not to be this portrait of George Washington's cook, um, served to confirm just how much we hunger really for, for this idea of eating meat for time. Um, so to conclude, I'll just sort of say, you know, we may never be able to sort of perceive Hercules's face, and we certainly will not be able to meet the gaze of people like James Hemings or Melinda Russell. But it's my hope that by placing sort of the range of forms of aesthetic expression alongside each other, whether they're the archival fragments that attest to Hemings' cookery or the self-published cookbook that attests to Russell's culinary philosophy, we can expand our sense in the present of the richness of these aesthetic experiences of the past. Um, so these and the other artifacts that I discuss in the book, they sort of each carry with them their own theory of taste um, of how lived experience enters into cultural production, and then how both uh, that experience both shapes and is shaped by political constraint. So for the enslaved figures in the study in particular, um, the, the sort of this expanded conception of taste as including eating opens up additional space for their contributions to aesthetic philosophy to be recognized as such. Um, and then at the same time, I think this opening should not be viewed as any form of redress. Um, what I understand it really as sort of a call to action for us, both as readers and as scholars, to really to continue to push up against the bounds of our knowledge and to push ourselves uh, to develop new techniques to find new meaning from these fragments of the past. So I just want to thank you for listening. I apologize for the uh, chaos of my family home. And I'm now eager to hear your questions and your ideas. There is no apology necessary, Lauren. You have a unflappable focus. I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed. After months and months of this, <laughs> <laughs> in all circumstances, just be glad she's wearing clothes. That's <laughs> all right. Well, while I give folks a few moments to compose some questions, I want to start with sort of a large sort of overarching question that I have. Um, it seems that there are two big keywords here, um, aesthetics and taste, which I tend to think about synonymously or at least very closely aligned. And I'm curious, given that you've spent so much time with this, like going back to the late 18th century, early 19th century, was there a preferred nomenclature? Was there a relationship between the two of those concepts? That's such a good question. I appreciate your asking that. And I think, you know, this was, this was really one of the, one of, there was a couple of starting points for the project that all uh, sort of came together. But one of them was my own interesting discovery, which really came to me via Denise Giganti's work on the 18th century British literature, um, that the idea of taste actually precedes the idea of aesthetics by nearly a century. You know, we tend to think of the colloquial term sort of coming out of some rarefied discourse. That's usually how it happens, right? Like people theorizing, and then it seems like a good idea that can be generalized. 
and it sort of gets simplified as it enters common parlance. But really what you see in the 18th century is philosophers, um, you know, including, you know, some of the most luminary philosophers, you know, you might think of David Hume, you might go back further, or the Earl of Shaftesbury, you see this in like popular journals like Addison and Steele, identifying a sort of composite uh, process, right, that is simultaneously something intensely personal and almost instinctual, um, the sort of like how you feel when you perceive something, and then sort of coupled with your ability to decide whether or not you like it. Um, and it's sort of this two-part process, first the perception, and then the evaluation of this perception. And obviously, you know, there's, there's a larger body of work that traces us to the rise of material culture, um, and the middle class and the coffee house public sphere, not Legos, which you see on the side. Um, but these philosophers, you know, they were philosophers in the sense that like, they were truly trying to wrestle with this thing that they knew that people did, and they were trying to name and describe it. And as they came up with their more formal philosophy, um, they used the metaphor of eating in all of their philosophical works in order to sort of think through this process. And it was actually Alexander Baumgarten in like sort of the middle of the 18th century in Germany, name sort of redeploys an existing term to sort of describe this as aesthetic judgment, but it wasn't even until the end of the 18th century that this term gained popular currency in English. And then when you need to account for the transition from Europe to the United States or America, then the, the colonial and then the United States, it takes even longer to get to where we sit now. And so people really had, they were, they thought about eating a lot as a philosophical mechanism. Mm. Um, and so this is just something I just found this fascinating, right? You know, especially when we think of, you know, we think of, you know, capital P philosophy, we think of, you know, Hume and Kant and all the Burke, you know, all these philosophers from this time, but they themselves were thinking through their theories with respect to eating. And then I think that's sort of like, to me, that's the move that I really try to make in the book. The fact that no one had this rarefied aesthetic theory means that everyone who was thinking about eating was also thinking about taste, right? And so then you open, it opens up like, people cooking food were also thinking about this because this was, um, you know, I believe, I don't know if it's Denise Giganti or Aaron Mackey, like one of these scholars of 18th century uh, popular culture says like, this was a time that everyone was talking about taste. They were all so interested. You know, how do I become sophisticated? What does it mean that I like this? That that person likes this? Like this was just something that everyone was thinking about at the time. And yet across the, almost across the board in the late colonial era and into the early United States, the people who were doing the cooking, who were preparing the food that people were thinking about were for the most part enslaved people, were women, um, were people who sort of aren't looked to as are people who are um, sort of aren't looked to for their contributions against a sort of like high enlightenment philosophy. And yet there they were performing and uh, sort of thinking through this, what I describe as sort of embodied aesthetic theory. Hmm. Yeah, what's, what's, what's great about that is it sort of removes the, uh, I think, artificial barriers between like taste as this cerebral activity and um, sociability and the sensual, which is something that you say really eloquently, you say the acts of cooking and eating, uh, you draw the connection between that and the, and, and the synthesis of the sensory, the cerebral and the social. And it's really interesting to hear that people from this period would have acknowledged that, that sort of porousness between those categories. Um, so we have a great question here from uh, Mark Valeri um, about taste. How do ideas of taste or taste or, 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 or food taste change throughout the 18th century? 
and do these changes reflect political circumstances? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, they totally do. So they change both throughout the 18th century and they change throughout the 19th century. And this whole trajectory is very revealing, right? Um, and so over the course of the 18th century, what I, we have what, happened, what I've previously discussed, right? So it's these philosophers really thinking through um, eating as essentially their primary metaphor in order to formulate their theories of aesthetic judgments. But by the end of the century, eating sort of becomes too messy um, and you see this, you can even, you can sort of predict this will happen because of people like John Locke, who has the hierarchy of the senses, right, where, um, you know, it literally involves getting your hands dirty and it's smelly um, and it sort of becomes too base. And so you see a gradual shift as, uh, as the theories become more uh, sort of uh, solidified, oh, yeah. people start to look for uh, uh, more rarefied examples of the same phenomenon. So you see a shift from tastes and smells and everyday lived experience to, you know, examples of high art. So if you've read, you know, like Kant or someone, um, you can think, you know, you were talking about like the Colosseum and you're talking about St. Peter's and architecture, you know, things like this that are perceived as a distance. Um, the other thing that starts happening, um, especially over the course of the 19th century and arguably, actually not arguably, like I'll just, um, you know, even into the late 20th century, Country, you see, um, on the one hand, the recognition of the political power of aesthetic taste. So first, sort of this alignment with political principles. Um, but then at a certain point, that becomes too dangerous, right? People don't want aesthetics to be associated with politics anymore. And you get a depoliticization of the aesthetic. Um, and this is actually fuels a lot of arguments that start to emerge, at, you know, like beginning with people like um, like Terry Eagleton and people like this, but really passing through, um, you know, Christopher Luby and Cindy Weinstein have a great book called, um, wait, now I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's something about the politics of the aesthetic. Um, but it's like a return, sort of this insistence that because aesthetics is rooted in the experience of the body um, and it is so tied to consensus views about what people think, it cannot be but political. Um, and so you get a real divide between the arts for art's sake people and the people who say, no, actually thinking about aesthetics. As much as you know. Who people say this is actually a really valuable, like the idea that art, is, that an aesthetic judgment is political, this makes it really valuable and interesting and we should pay more attention to this rather than try to dismiss it as something that somehow delegitimizes um, what we think you know, is good or bad about art. Great. Um, incidentally, it's American Literature's Aesthetic Dimension. Uh, okay. I just okay. dropped it in the chat so folks can look it up uh, through Columbia University Press. Uh, somewhat relatedly, Sam Summers asks, can you say a little bit more about whether there are any examples of 18th century thinkers referencing famine or hunger or simply not having enough to eat in relation to 17th century colonial Americans or perhaps their contemporaries? Yeah, you know, there, you know, there's, there's a lot of this, and I deliberately chose not to focus on this in my book. I know that Rachel Herman has a great book about colonial American hunger and food security that is out either now or will be out soon. Um, and she might also have been a library company fellow, I'm not sure. Um, you know, but the interesting thing is that you do see this narrative, especially in the early 19th century as American writers and especially try to sort of recuperate the colonial era as sort of like the stuff of their national cultural history, like Lydia Mariah Child. I write, I don't write about this particular aspect of 
her work in the book, but I do have a chapter that talks a little bit about child. Um, but she's, you know, the narrative is like, then we were hungry, now we are full, or, or you have people saying, oh, it wasn't hunger, it was simplicity, right? Those Puritans or those colonial, those early settlers, they were, look how good they were at being happy and content with what little they have. We should really embody that um, and sort of try to shift it from like the realities of hunger and starvation to having it become more symbolic. And this is something that I think, uh, again, sort of is interesting to look back on, you know, as and with tracks the sort of gradual rise of interest, popular interest in aesthetics and taste and actually eating is that people in the early 19th century then recognize food as sort of more meaningful and symbolic than they previously, than earlier writers, even as they narrated it, sort of didn't necessarily like sort of, uh, sort of infuse it or laden it with additional symbolic meaning. So you see, you see like food and novels and short stories. James Fenimore Cooper is another person who does this. Um, Charles Brockton Brown, uh, mm -hmm. Irving, you know, like all of these people are like, oh, this is great. You know, we can really make this food work for us, right? Um, but then what they're going back to is a lot of this archival stuff that I deal with in the first two thirds, three quarters of the book. So I've got a really good question for you uh, in particular. This is from uh, Sam Schneider uh, asking about DH. Uh, the DH network analysis you did is very fascinating. How did you put that together after doing your initial research? It's such a good question. Um, I love talking about this project because, you know, it actually started when I was in grad school, this particular DH project. I, you know, have done work since. Um, and it really did come out of this challenge that I just sort of explained to you that I was fascinated by James Hemings and I just couldn't, like I couldn't get search to work for me and I thought there had to be some other methods that I could employ. Um, you know, and so this sort of really, I think, set me on a whole different path for, you know, my work and my scholarship and I have a whole other side of my work that deals with that. But it really wasn't until I was putting together the chapters for the book that I realized that that project belonged in this book, that this book was as much a book about methods as it was about food. Mm. You know, I really, in my mind, had conceived of them, like this was the food book, um, and then the other stuff was the DH work. But then I realized that, you know, this book is as much about, you know, I think it's as much about the process of how I came to tell the stories that I tell in the book. And, you know, a lot of the things that I, one of the things I really tried to do in the book was to, tell a really good story and really sort of infuse life into these figures about which the reality is we really don't know very much. Um, and so I try to sort of set the stage and sort of give narrative detail, which is confirmed by records from the archive, but it might be like, you know, a record of purchasing a particular plate that I then talk about as the plate that was served, you know, used for Hemings or Hercules or someone just um, and I, you know, I, it was the DH stuff that got me thinking about method and thinking about sort of why we need this whole complementary suite of methods at our disposal in order to do justice to some of these stories, which otherwise, you know, could be told the reverse would be like, well, here's what we know, you know, this happened on this day, this kind of thing. Um, and I realized that it related to this project. So it was sort of a, and then I rewrote, there's like a, an early article version of that network visualization project, which is like a standalone piece, but it's really aimed at the DH community. And then I rewrote it for the book, trying to say, well, how does this inform archival research in general? And sort of like what we, the, the things that we can think to do when we encounter 
these silences or gaps in the archive? Like, how do we move beyond them? Yeah, that that's um, kind of an interesting place for us to start winding this down because I feel like right now so many of us are are, are, are trapped at home with our with our little ones and whatnot, and and trying to be productive uh, scholars, and it can be really hard. And um, I'm curious to know, you know, this is a project that's ten years in the making, uh, and you've matured considerably we'll as a scholar. What's that? I said we'll call it ten. It was honestly, it probably took longer, but. We can call it 10 let's, years. Let's, right? uh, let's uh, round down to 10 years, yeah. So, I mean, like, what, what sustained your interest in it? Like, how did you keep going at this? That's, a, that's another really good question. I mean, I would say it wasn't, you know, I, this was a project that has always been important to me, um, but has not been my focus at all times. Like, I was constantly, over the past 10 years, I've been pulled away to do a lot of other things, like have two children, that was the major one, um, but also, you know, I edit this digital humanities book series. Um, we put out a bunch of books in this intervening time. I started up a DH Center um, at Georgia Tech where I worked for a lot of years. Um, but I think that, you know, so it wasn't that I worked like for 10 years on the street, but I think that one of the nice things about this project was that every time I came back to it, I sort of identified new aspects of it that were interesting to me that made me want to write about it in that moment. And there were certain things that, I, that I've been thinking about and scholars who I had cited at the very beginning who sort of, like I knew, I knew there was something there, but it hadn't quite crystallized for me sort of what that was or how influential they might be. And then to see at the very end, and I, you know, it's been really heartening, you know, not these other scholars have done where I like don't even want to place myself in their in their realm, but like Cydia Hartman see the trajectory of her work, which like, you know, I've read her first book as a grad student. I read the essay that I cited here, like late in grad school, her Wayward Lives book just came out, you know, last year. And to see her sort of going through the similar process of first refusal, like we, I will not re-narrate these scenes of violence that is the ethical thing to do, to then sort of acknowledge the gaps um, and move on. Um, and then the third is to sort of move beyond them, to sort of see that our, another person, Marisa Fuentes, um, her book is another one that came out, you know, like as I was finishing this up. And it's been sort of nice to feel that I've been in sort of a, like an intellectual community of scholars all trying to ask ourselves, look, we all study this time period. This archive is disfigured. It is, you know, irreparably flawed because of the ways in which the archive was constructed. But what do we do now, right? Like, what do we do in the year 2020 do so that we can move beyond that? So um, that's, I think to me, that's been like the most affirming part of having this project take so long and having it come out now. <laughs> well, and I mean, the, time, the timing couldn't be better for our purposes because the library company just went on <laughs> and published a graphic novel. Uh, and that graphic novel, it, it's indebted to the idea of critical fabulation from Sadia Hartman. It's indebted to the idea of reading along that bias grain from Fuentes. So all of this feels like we're very much uh, winding up in the same pathway here. Uh, so this sounds like a tremendous project. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that we couldn't get you to physically come into the library company, but I assure you that whenever we reopen, if you happen to find your way to Philadelphia, we would love to have you. Um, thank you so much, Lauren.
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And for the rest of us looking ahead to next Thursday, same time, same place, your couch, uh, Scott C. Miller is going to help us historicize the economic uncertainty that we're facing today with a chat on the long reach of the Great Depression of the 1780s. I uh, hope to see you then. Thank you all.